0: the late 90s, Tim and I were in college at the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse, go Screaming eagles, and there was this one night that we were up on Granddad's Bluff, this like beautiful bluff sort of small mountain in the Midwest, overlooking the Mississippi River, and um, we were with some friends, and when we started coming down, there were these bright flashes of light and um, we, uh, it, there were police officers taking our pictures as evidence, and the, I was like two in the morning, as evidence in case we ran um, because we were holding beer bottles. Do, do you have any questions about this story? <laughs> some of you are like, please, Susie, we don't wanna hear this story in church. Um, but when I tell you that much information, you have some questions, right? Uh, maybe your mind has like filled in the blank like, you know the rest of the story. Um, but true story, what happened actually uh, is that we were with a bunch of friends, and we had guitars, and we, it was like a Christian ministry thing up on them, and we were like sitting around singing um, worship music, and we took over a fire, like a campfire, uh, that someone had left with a bunch of empty beer bottles. <laughs> So, like, as good Samaritans, we were like, you know, let's clean these up and take these down the bluff at, like, 2 in the morning. And (laughs) that's the truth. (laughs) Brad is like, sure, that's the story. That is actually the story. And uh, so we had, you know, we got breathalyzers and the whole bit. But the reason I tell you that is because story, our minds, are so incredibly wired for story that when I gave you that first little bit of the story if you're anything like me, your mind immediately started to fill in the rest of the story. Even though that story was kind of an unpredictable, strange, unusual set of circumstances for a couple of 20-somethings in college at that season. In the book Uncommon Ground, which is written by a bunch of different authors, uh, hip-hop artist Lecrae talks about the way in which... Our minds are wired for story, like our brains have this need to just make sense of the world. We need to know why things are the way that they are. And so, what do we do? We hear something and we start asking questions. We start wondering why. We study history, we study religion. We study the stars. We do all these different things to try to make sense of the world because we are like hardwired. We need to know why. Even if we get the story wrong, at least we have like a why. We have closure in our brains. And every story has some essential components in it. You have a plot. You have a problem. You have a protagonist. You have an antagonist, you have something that's broken and in need of repair, you have a hero, and usually that hero overcomes something in some way. And we spend like billions of dollars every year to hear good stories. I mean, we read novels, we watch Netflix, we watch movies, we love stories. We're just like, want to have a why. Stories stay with us far more than sermons and charts and graphs. And what most of us do when we try to make sense of the world is we try to find ways to fit it into a story that will make sense. We look at the problems in our world and we try to figure out, like, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? So Lecrae, in this chapter, he talks about the incident in 2014, the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri now what happened there it means something but what it means depends on the story being told so in one narrative in one narrative it says that you know the black community is made up of good people in bad circumstances and the local police are bad people who abuse power so the black community must fight to show that black lives matter and take the police to task. That narrative gives meaning to many people trying to make sense of what happened in that St. Louis suburb. Another narrative says that the police are the heroes doing the best they can in a dangerous profession. And people like Mike Brown are the villains who break the law and face the unfortunate consequences of their actions. In this narrative, we can't allow race to blind us from seeing that crime is crime and the justice system will ultimately sort out what really happened. Two narratives. Two different good guys, two different bad guys, and this is how the enemy-making machine is born. You know, in that, uh, in that story, one narrative says that the police are villains, the other narrative says that people like Mike Brown are villains. And it's almost like we cannot view events in our world, like Ferguson, without constructing a story in our minds. Our minds immediately start asking why. And usually we construct stories that will fit with our pre-existing worldview. It's actually easier to believe a false narrative than it is to accept something that runs counter to whatever my pre-existing worldview is. So what's a worldview? A worldview, we've often said before, it's like a set of glasses, right? It's the way in which I view and see the world. That's a worldview, And we all have one, and we often are not aware of it. It's the lens through which we are making sense of the world we live in. And there is a space that is beyond enemies, a space beyond all the blaming and the name-calling and the finger-pointing. It is a space That we could call, it's a generative space. It's producing life. It's a generative space that it's a creative space. It's a caring space. It's a space full of creativity. It is a space that is not stuck in the enemy-making machine of our world. It's the way that Christ invites us into. So let's talk for a minute about a Christian worldview. A Christian worldview is a worldview, it's a way of viewing the world that is determined by the biblical story, by the story of the Bible, by the grand narrative. So when I look at events in the world, when I grapple with the brokenness of things, I see it through the lens, first and foremost, of the story of the Bible, of the grand story of the Bible, And this is where a space beyond enemies begins. Because it seems right now that it is very easy for followers of God in the way of Jesus to just lose the plot. In all the sound bites and all the echo chambers, it is very easy to lose the plot. What is going on? Why are we here? And what is the point of all this? It is very easy to forget the story we live in and to fall into the tribalism, the nationalism, the enemy-making machine of our world right now, just along with everybody else. But the scriptures, they tell the true story of the universe. The Bible gives us the grand narrative. And a couple weeks ago, I introduced this idea to you from Christopher Wright. He offers like a drama of the grand narrative, a drama of the story of the Bible in seven acts. It begins with creation, right? That is act one. And the points of that triangle are God, humanity, and the creation, the earth. And they are in perfect harmony. This is creation. It's a perfect garden. And then in Act 2, we have the Great Rebellion. That is when we choose to disobey God. We choose to disobey God's instructions, and we choose for ourselves what's good and what is evil. In the rebellion, we, humanity, brought sin and death and division into human life. And we brought brokenness into creation itself. So that's Act 2. And then in Act 3, you have the Old Testament promise. The Old Testament promise is God saying, I will bring blessing and I will bring salvation. And through Abraham, he launches a people, Israel, who will be the beginning of this good news, this blessing that will ultimately embrace all nations on earth. And then Act 4 is Christ. This is the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. This is the core of the gospel. This is the center of the story. This is what we celebrate each week when we come to the table of communion. It's the heartbeat. It's the central act. And then act five. Act five is the New Testament mission. This is the beginning. It's like the drama continues. This is the beginning of the church on the day of Pentecost, when God sends his Holy Spirit and gives the church this task to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And this act starts at Pentecost, and it goes until Christ returns. So what act are we living in right now? Act five, the New Testament mission. That is where we live right now, but the story is not over. In act six, The scriptures say there will be final judgment. Now, we said a couple weeks ago, judgment gets a really bad rap, right? We don't like that word. But the good news of this act is that evil will not have the last word. God will ultimately put all things right. That's really what judgment means in the Bible. God will put all things right by dealing with and destroying all that's wrong and evil in the world. And then we have the new creation. This is a return to the garden. This is when heaven and earth are one again. This is when God walks with us in the garden again, redeemed humanity in resurrected bodies like the resurrected body of Jesus. This is the new creation, when God will make all things new, and come and dwell with us. That perfect garden will be restored. No more pain, no, no more evil, no more injustice, no more suffering. So that is the great story of the Bible. And we're called to live in that story and for that story. We ought to orient our lives around that story. We ought to, our worldview, We ought to see the world through that story. We ought to live in light of what that story says about who we are and why we are here. So that story gives us our identity, gives us our mission. And notice in that story, everybody and everything is impacted by the Great Rebellion. Everyone and everything has been impacted by sin. It's why we have shame. Everything and everyone has been impacted. So for followers of Christ who live in this story, like there is no room for vilifying my enemy because I'm aware, first and foremost, of my own need for forgiveness and mercy and grace. I am aware first and foremost that, like, I am totally lost and without hope apart from what God did for me in Christ. And every day is this throwing myself on the grace and mercy available in Christ again. So there's no room for vilifying my enemy because, first and foremost, I'm aware who the great rebellion that's impacted me, us, our planet. The earth? My enemy? But maybe you've noticed, like, there is another story being told. And every single day, in a thousand different ways, we're being invited to live in and for a different story. And the very strong, very seductive story being told in our world right now no matter what you think about what, is this story of us versus them. It's the story of tribalism. It's the story of an enemy-making machine. Now, our scripture passage for this morning can help us if we're humble enough and willing to hear its message. This passage, um, the Apostle Paul is writing these words to a church in conflict in Corinth, a town, a city. And he said this, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the house hold of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. <laughs> For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Paul isn't against conflict. In fact, like a chapter earlier, uh, or a little, a little bit uh, different spot in the book, in uh, 1 Cor- Corinthians 5, he points out that um, sometimes there are issues that the church needs to be in conflict in order to not bring shame to the witness of Christ. But Paul's first concern in this letter is that there are divisions and there is this tribalism. And tribalism is just like our tendency to not just divide into groups, but to then begin to fight with our opponents. It's like the core of the us versus them mentality. Ed Stetzer describes tribalism this way. He says, tribalism thinks and says, this is us. We got to take this back. Or as it often sounds, we got to take our country back. Tribalism sees the world as made up of groups competing in a game we can only win or lose. So no matter what side you're on, tribalism says the other side is the enemy. But the Christian story, the grand narrative, the story of the Bible says that sin is the enemy. Sin is the antagonist. That Christ Jesus is the only savior, is the only true protagonist. In all the other stories that we adopt and are influenced by, and all the other stories that we love, there may be some truth, but it's not comprehensive. It's like an echo. It's never comprehensive. In all the other stories, you may have a good guy, but he's never fully good because in a Christian worldview, there is only one who's fully good, and that is God. In all the other stories, you might have a bad guy, But we're never going to conclude that he is fully evil. Because we believe no one made in the image of God is beyond God's spirit's ability to rescue and redeem. Even the most wayward, even the most fallen. So in all the other stories, the characters are flawed. No one is fully good or evil because according to the story of the Bible, only Christ is fully good. Everybody else made in the image of God is like a mixture. Everyone else made in the image of God is marred by sin, and no one's outside the grace and mercy available in Christ. So that means we enter conflict with humility, remembering Remembering this larger story we live in. So tribalism, the enemy-making machine, that story of our world is counter to the gospel story because it seeks to say that my side is all good and motivated by pure ben- benevolence. Your side is pure evil and motivated by nothing but hate. You are beyond hope. So when, when you find yourself, when I find myself, thinking of my enemy be it personal or professional or political when i find myself thinking of my enemy in this way i can know that in that moment at least i have traded the gospel narrative for a narrative of tribalism i can know that this is something to repent of to return to the gospel narrative that says All of us have been impacted by sin. We have been impacted both personally and so has all of creation. Sin has impacted us personally and systemically. And all of creation is in need of restoration. When we step into the gospel narrative and live in that story, we remember (laughs) that America, and any other nation for that matter, is not the hero. (laughs) We remember when we're in the grand story that America or any other nation is not our source of joy and hope and is not our source of brokenness. In that great chapter in the book, Lecrae says this. He says, the problem, the villain, it's always sin. The solution, the hero, it's always the gospel. That is having a Christian worldview. And in our scripture passage, Paul, he doesn't side with one faction or the other in these debates. What does he do? He points directly to the gospel. What does he say? Is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? Was it Paul who was crucified for you? Like, only one man died for the church in Corinth. And that man was Christ Jesus. That's the only Savior of the world. That means only one person is the Savior. And it's not a political candidate. And it's not a platform. And it's not a party. It's a person in whom there is no sin. It's a person who is not divided. And that person... That person has shown us the way. It's a way of humility and service and love and taking all the power that he had available and emptying himself of it, laying it down for the flourishing and the shalom of others, of all of humanity. It's Christ's resurrection that's given us life and drawn us together as a people. Paul is saying to this church in this passage this is your story. This is the plot. This is the plot that should unite you. This is where you should find your identity and your mission rather than finding reasons to divide among rival parties. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. Come together from a wide variety of backgrounds to create one new community who has at its center the hope available in Jesus. Craig Blomberg says this church should be a place where people who have no other natural reason for associating with each other come together in love. I love that. (laughs) No other natural reason for associating with, come together in love. Centered around person and work and ongoing ministry of Christ. You know, sometimes, I don't know about you, sometimes um, it's just hard for me to see myself in the grand narrative. Like, wh- what part do does little old me, like, play in facing, like, cosmic, huge, great ramifications of rebellion from sin in the world? And, you know, who am I to do anything about racism in our country, or those moments where you're reading something, and you're like, oh my goodness, it, are we headed towards civil war? You know, you just get overwhelmed. But each of us plays a role in shaping culture, the culture we live in. And we do that by how we move and live and have our being in the world. In his book, Culture Care, the author, Uh, says that culture is not a war to be won, but a garden to be cultivated. And I love that because in the beginning, there was this perfect garden. And we participate right now in Act 5 of the drama. We participate with God in cultivating that same garden here on earth as it is in heaven. And then one day... God's going to restore that garden in all its glory. And during Act 5, what we're doing is we are cultivating that garden. It's called the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus prayed, you know, on earth as it is in heaven. The culture of the kingdom of God, it's not a war to be won. It's a garden to be tended. And each of us plays a part. So that means how you do your work how you show up to your people, how you talk and relate with your enemies, all of that is cultivating the garden. That is culture care, and it matters. You've been born of God. You live and move and have your being in God. You're here in Act 5 to cultivate the garden. You're not here to conquer enemies. You're here to tend the space, Given to you with nurture and creativity, and to trust that this world belongs to God. And your shoulders, like they were never designed to bear the whole weight of this world. And you can trust that this is God's world and that God is making all things new. So we engage in even the harshest of environments with a generative approach, trusting that this is God's world. We don't operate out of scarcity or out of fear or out of a need to to be a part of the enemy-making machine, but rather as those who are tending a garden, nurturing it with creativity and care and justice and love. Sarah Groves is a singer and a songwriter, and she tells this story that I just loved where she's talking about getting very discouraged as a singer-songwriter and having this period in her life where she was like, what is the point of poems? What is the point of songs? Like, in a world facing such incredible injustice, facing such incredible turmoil, what's the point of songs? What's the point of... And she's getting very discouraged, and she talks about how she came to see the importance of little acts of creativity and nurture, even in the midst of the most harshest of environments. And she tells the story, perhaps you've heard, famous story of the cellist of Sarajevo, a guy named Vidran Smolovic. This man witnessed like the harshest of evils. In his country during the Bosnian War, there were some bombs that were dropped, and 22 civilians, Who were standing in line, a bread line, to receive bread, lost their lives. Harshest of evils. And what's it? He plays the cello. So he's like, what's the point of my work? Like, what is the point of my work in the face of this? Like, they were standing in line to get bread. And you know what he did? he decided he was going to play 22 concerts over 22 days for the 22 lives lost standing in the middle of the bombed out craters and the bombed out buildings of that war. And so he actually put on his full tuxedo and he went and he stepped down into the crater, and he played his cello. It becomes this picture that's just like so beautiful and so inspiring. It's like this picture of resistance. Because everything about the situation is saying despair. It's time to despair. There are bombs blowing up. Innocent civilians standing in line to get bread. It is time to fear and it is time to despair. And it's interesting because actually it is quite easy to stand around a crater whatever it may be and analyze it. It gets quite easy to be like let's talk about the crater. Let's talk about how we got here. Let's talk about the good guys and the bad guys. Let's talk about, you know, all the different facets of that's actually quite easy. the harder work is to go stand at the edge of that crater and put on your full tuxedo and like step down into it and to create something right there that is generative and lasting and loving and nurturing and life-giving. Sometimes your greatest act of resistance is when the world around you is saying, it's time to despair. It is time to fear. It is time to be anxious. Sometimes your greatest act of resistance is to stand right there and to choose to love and to choose to live despite all of that pressure that's telling you to despair. Despite all of those sound bites that are telling you to fear, he took up his cello. May you take up your cello or your calculator or pick up your child or your classroom or your computer or whatever it is that the work that you do, and may you do it with love and with life and with creativity, may you live a generative life, not just analyzing the crater, but like seeing it. We're not ignoring it. We're we're actually like stepping into it. And then like right there in that blown out building, right there in the middle of that mess, making something that benefits those around you, doing something with love, blesses the people who work next to you, and for you, and above you, and around you. That is the space beyond enemies. Jesus himself, you know, he stood. He stood at the edge of a crater, this sinful world. And he didn't debate about it. And he didn't get into a bunch of factions about it. He didn't start a war about it. He stepped into the sin of that crater. Becoming sin himself. That we might know the righteousness of God. And the one who endured resides in you. So may you not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray together as we close. God, we thank you that you became sin, that we might know the righteousness of God. Thank you for showing us the way. Thank you that you, yourself, Jesus, were taken and blessed and broken and given for the healing of the world. Would you help us see what it means to follow you in these turbulent times, to be people of faith and hope and love. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.